The Gospel of Luke, it's very similar to the two Gospels that come before it in the Bible, Matthew and Mark. In fact, those first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of scholars call those the synoptic Gospels because they go through the, the same beats of the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Very similar in many ways. A lot of the passages you can even find almost to be identical. But what's really interesting when you start to look at two books that are very similar is to notice the differences. You see, each author has some specific themes that they want to draw out within Jesus' ministry. And Luke is no different. One of those themes is the theme of prayer. Luke spends more time talking about prayer than Matthew and Mark combined. Matthew references prayer seven times. Mark references it 13 times. In Luke alone, it's referenced 21 times. Uh, in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, that's kind of a continuation of Luke, prayer is mentioned another 25 times. There's even details in Jesus' ministry that Luke mentions revolving around prayer that Matthew and Mark, Luke, and Luke don't. Uh, that Matthew and Mark don't, but Luke does. For instance, Luke is the only one that references Jesus as praying during his baptism. Luke is the only one that mentions that Jesus, before picking his 12 disciples, prayed the entire night leading up to that moment. Luke will often reference when the disciples go looking for Jesus, and typically they find him somewhere praying. Luke is also the only one that mentions that when Jesus was praying in the garden before he was to be betrayed and executed, that he sweat great drops of blood as he passionately prayed. So it's no surprise then that we would find some stories, some parables that Jesus gives, that Luke records, that deal with prayer. And this parable is no different. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. The parable of the persistent widow. And this parable is a little bit different from most. Part of the reason is because it's only one of two parables where they actually reference the, the purpose for the parable before it's even shared. They kind of give us a cheat sheet before we actually dive into the story. And we find it there in the very first verse of chapter 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there's a couple purposes already that Luke wants us to know about this parable. The first is that Jesus wants his disciples, that's who he's telling this parable to, he wants his disciples to know that they should always be praying. Not to say that we should always be praying to the point that we're never interrupted. Obviously, we're still doing other things going around. Not that we should be praying in such a way that we are just repeating over and over again or trying to make up additional words to get maybe God to hear us a little bit better this time around. But to pray continually, to pray in any circumstance, no matter what we're facing, no matter what obstacles come our way, that we should be making it a priority 
the top priority to go to God in prayer. Essentially, that prayer should be like breathing. Breathing for the soul. When I was a little guy, uh, I had a tendency, if I was getting really upset, to hold my breath when I was on the verge of crying. Sometimes I never got to the crying point. I would just kind of vaguely pass in and out a little bit because I was holding my breath for so long. Luke wants us to know that prayer should be like breathing for the soul so that we don't pass out. Because he goes on to say the secondary reason for this is that we would not lose heart. Literally, that we would not get discouraged, that we would not give up, that we would not faint. And the reality is there are many reasons that we could think of why we could lose heart. If any of you were to pull out your phone right now and pull up any news website, you would not really need to even scroll on your phone to find a reference to something that's a disaster going on right now. To see evil taking place in the world, to see some horrible injustice, to see yet another shooting take place, to hear about people starving around the world. We're surrounding a world where there are an incredible amount of abortions happening every year, where we see all different kinds of injustice taking place around us. People attacked just because of the way they look. We see injustice all around us and it is easy to lose heart. It is easy as we cry out and then there's not a response quickly in our prayer to begin to let that doubt creep in. Is God really good? Is God really listening? Does God really care? And it used to be when, when a horrible disaster would strike, when there would be a mass shooting where you would see people flood on social media on how they were praying for the victims, that you, they were praying that God would intervene, that God would bring justice. And now, when I get on my social media after something like that, what I see over and over again is people saying, keep your prayers. We don't want them. We don't need them. They haven't done any good to us yet, and they're not gonna do any good to us now. The world itself tells us that prayer doesn't do any good, that it doesn't matter. But Jesus is saying that prayer is breath for the soul, that it gets us through, prevents us from losing heart. And to that end, he spoke this parable, starting in verse 2. And Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
In this story, we are introduced to a couple of characters. The first is what is known as the unrighteous judge. Now, if you're looking at the story, what the disciples would have understood is that Jesus is going out of his way to make this judge look like the worst of the worst, the most corrupt within the government that you can think of, the most wicked kind of man that you could ever imagine. On a scale of ultimate wickedness to the best of the best, the judge is as far on the wicked side of the scale as you can get. Jesus is making extreme exaggerations to the point where he even has the judge himself say, I don't fear God and I don't respect man. How many people do you know that actually like say that out loud, right? I don't fear God. I don't respect man. I'm a wicked person and I don't care. That's how wicked and evil this judge is. The farthest on the extreme as possible. And then you also have this widow. Now this widow, that, that would have really piqued the interest of the people that were hearing Jesus tell this parable. And here's why. In this culture, women, they don't go to the court. They don't go to the judge. They don't go on their behalf. A man always goes on the behalf of the woman that's been wronged. What that tells us, what Jesus is telling us in the story is not only is this a widow left behind by her deceased husband, but she has no father, she has no brother, she has absolutely no one to speak on her behalf. She is truly and completely alone. So she keeps going to this judge. She has had a wrong done to her. We don't know what the wrong is, and that's not necessary to know and understand the story. All we need to know is there has been an injustice done to this woman. So she goes consistently to this judge over and over and over again. Notice it's a little bit interesting. She never stops going to the judge. She doesn't reach a point where she says, you know what, I'm taking matters into my own hands now. I'm done with this. She keeps going to the judge saying, bring me justice for the wrong that has been done. And the judge refuses for a while. He does not care about the plight of this woman. He just wants to go on about his day. But finally, after a while, he gives in, not out of any desire to, to show compassion to this woman, not because he has a little shred of humanity in him, but per, for purely selfish reasons. Where it actually says here, and he's thinking through his thoughts, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Beat me down, literally, so that she will not give me a black eye. He is fed up with this. I imagine in the story, I like to kind of try and think through the story and what it might actually be like a little bit. I imagine this judge, she's coming so often he could set her, his watch by it. Every day, 10 o'clock in the morning, she's banging on my door. And the only way to get rid of this woman is to finally just give her what she wants so I can go about my day as a man that neither fears God nor respects man. 
Now, some would read this parable up to this point and they would think that the message is this. If I beat down on God's door long enough, he'll cave. He'll finally give in if I just nag him long enough. If I just become that annoying person, that squeaky wheel that just won't stop bringing this up. But this is a parable of contrasts where Jesus speaks of the extremes of these characters and compares it with reality. Continuing on in verse six, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The disciples were probably wondering up to this point, why is Jesus going out of his way so much to tell us truly how wicked and corrupt this judge is? They were not strangers to corruption in government. That was kind of the way of the world. But Jesus is really harping on just how evil this judge is. And there's a reason for that. Jesus in one fell swoop has said, if, if this unrighteous judge is the worst of the worst on this scale, God is the complete opposite of that. He is full of goodness and compassion. Where the unrighteous judge does not want to hear the widow's plea, God wants to hear our cries. It's not just that he does hear them, he desires to hear from us in our struggle. Where the judge didn't want to help this woman in her struggle, God does. It's not just that he's capable of intervening. He desires to fight on our behalf. The widow's the same way. The widow is completely alone, has no one to advocate on her behalf when we have been told from God's word that we have an advocate in Christ. The widow is a stranger to this judge. The judge does not know her at all. There is no relationship there. Whereas for us, we are called children of God. We are not going to a seat of an unrighteous judge. We are going into the throne room of the Creator where we are welcomed. The widow is alone. No husband is coming back for her. But we are called to be in Christ's body, Christ's church, and that is the bride of Christ, where the groom will one day come back again. It's a story of contrasts. From lesser to greater. And within this context, Jesus is calling his disciples to persevere in prayer. When the darkness comes, continue to pray. The greater context is this idea of that this is justice and the second coming of Christ as we see at the very end of this 
parable here there in verse eight. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is a hard parable when you dig a little deeper because the reality is we wait so often and the waiting is hard and we can often ask ourselves and wonder why? Why wait? That took me a while to understand as I was looking through this parable. But digging deeper, there's an answer. Going back into verse 7, where Jesus says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? That question, will he delay long over them? At initial glance, it really would just seem that the expected, expected answer is no. He won't delay long but, but the fact is, there's still a delay. What, why, God, why do you delay? When I'm crying out, why? Why do I have to wait? And after I dug deeper, I began to understand a little bit more by understanding what that word delay actually is. I'm gonna do something I don't normally do. I told my wife this morning, I'm gonna throw him for a loop. I'm actually going to give a word in the Greek. I don't normally do that, but I'm going to do it this time because it was the only way I actually was able to make sense of it. That word delay in that Greek word, what it actually is, is macrothumio. Nice big word. It's actually two Greek words combined into one. Macros meaning far distant. Far distant. Thumos meaning anger. Put it together and what you, you get in a literal sense is far distant from anger. Every time within the New Testament that this word is used, it's in reference to God being long-suffering and patient so that the wicked might repent. That's the reason for the delay. That in his compassion, grace, and mercy, he desires for the wicked to repent. To give them every opportunity possible. The reality is there's so, so often times where I am deserving of the justice I pray that God would deliver on others. But then I become so thankful when I instead receive God's mercy and grace and goodness to allow me to repent and make right what needs to be made right. Far distant from anger, but, and there's a but, it doesn't last forever. The very fact that he says, will he delay long over them, implies that no. Now, we might have a different definition of long, but there is an end to it. 
where the patience and the long-suffering is over. I'd imagine if anyone was kind of listening in to this parable that Jesus is telling his disciples, that might give them a little bit of pause. That there is a time clock. That repentance is necessary and the opportunity doesn't last forever. That there's an end to this. There's an end to this story. And I'd imagine that would be a little bit worrisome. And not just that, but the fact that he says in the beginning of verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This isn't the sense of immediate, but swiftly. The idea that when God acts, it will be swift, not drawn out. I remember when there was a time where I was, I was going through a bit of a struggle trying to figure out what God was wanting my family and I to do next. We knew that he was calling us out of our current circumstance, but we didn't really know what the next thing was. And there was a professor of mine that I had been speaking with, and he did what any good professor does. He gave me homework. And he told me, go ahead and do a study in Scripture on waiting on God. And through that, there was something that I learned. And that was in the midst of the waiting, when the waiting is over, God acts quickly. It's almost sudden. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, generation after generation, crying out to God, this long wait, when suddenly at the very end, one final plague God has in store with Moses. And he has Moses tell his people, go home and pack your things. Because when I say to leave, it's time to leave and escape as quick as possible. You see, Jesus is speaking to a people right now that has been crying out to God for a long time. They have been under an oppressive regime of Rome. Some have given up crying out to God and have taken matters into their own hands. They're called zealots. One of them was actually a disciple of Jesus, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot was someone, a political fanatic, essentially, an extremist. They've been crying out for so long and Jesus is saying, endure. Endure through prayer. But that is hard. That is not easy to wait when we see what feels like the world crumbling around us and wondering, when will an answer come? But Jesus says that it's continual prayer. It's continual prayer that keeps us from losing heart. But the trick is you gotta actually be praying. <laughs> now, 
my previous job before I came here, I essentially worked at a call center where I would help college students work through the degrees. Some of you have heard me mention this before. And there was a fairly common thing that would happen. A student would call in requesting for me to do something for them. And I would say, I'd be happy to do so. There's a couple things I just need to do on the back end in order to make this happen for you. Can I put you on hold for just about three to five minutes to take care of this for you? And then we'll get back on the phone and, and carry the rest of the way through. Okay, all right. I put them on hold and they hang up. Instantly, like they don't even wait a minute. They just hang up right away. I remember there was this one woman, this one woman who called during the time when I was essentially a specialist for School of Divinity programs there. And she was a School of Divinity student, and there was this, this action she wanted to take, and I had to explain to her, well, actually, we need to wait because we need to have X, Y, and Z done before we can do this. So we can't do this today. You're going to need to wait on a, on a few of these other things. She angrily hung up on me. And called back and got me again. In God's divine providence, she got me again. Hello, this is Fletcher. Click. Three more times she does this and gets me. Every single time. I answer, say my name, she knows who it is. Click. A little bit of time passes a few minutes and I get her again. I go do my introduction, and she interrupts me in a huff and says, I was told that I was being transferred to the authority on the School of Divinity programs. And much to her dismay, I said to her, ma'am, I am the authority in the School of Divinity programs. The reality is, that's how we are with prayer a lot of the time. We pray... And when the answer isn't as quickly as we hope, we stop. We try and find another solution. Maybe we try and take justice into our own hands. Maybe we just give up altogether. We stop. And what happens is we suffocate. We've cut off our air supply and we can no longer breathe. See, this, this psalm reminded me actually a good bit of, uh, so this parable reminded me a good bit of one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 13. Now, when people hear this and then they hear the psalm, they wonder, really? That's one of your favorite psalms? Because it's a little bit depressing. But it's a short psalm, and I, and I believe it actually articulates this, this idea of persevering prayer rather well. It's psalm 13. David's writing in a particularly difficult circumstance. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David wrote this psalm in a very trying time in his life. We don't know what the circumstance was. We could guess. There's plenty of recordings we have of very hard times that David had. All we know is he was completely distraught. In the beginning of the psalm, he's beyond discouraged. And by the end of the psalm, things change to the point where some have suggested this isn't even one psalm. It's, it's two psalms that someone decided to combine into one. But if you look a little bit closer, you actually see a pattern. The first two verses, the first two verses, David is saying, I'm in despair. I am broken. I am surrounded by injustice. And the next two verses, he prays. Now, I'm not calling it the most uplifting prayer in the world. It's not all roses. But he is crying out to God. Just as Jesus said at the end of his parable, for those who cry out day and night, David is crying out to God in prayer. And the result at the end of that psalm is endurance in his faith. As he prays, as he continues to call out to God, he is reminded of every time where it looked this bleak, but God was faithful. All the times where in the moment, it seemed like in that distant past that God was not there, at best he was asleep. But when I look back on it now, I can't help but see God's hand in it. When he prays, he remembers God's goodness and mercy and long-suffering. Here's the thing, people. Jesus ended this story with a question. A question that's being asked of each and every one of us that's in this room. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There are some who would hear that question, and their wrestling point with that is that it's time. It's time to repent. God has been long suffering enough, I've been running away from God long enough. 
It's time to come home. For others, it's I've been surrounded by this incredible injustice. I am surrounded by brokenness and despair. And I need to faithfully pray, pray continually that I might endure, that I might reach the end on the other side and say, God has been good. God has been faithful. And I have endured. That's the question he's asking each and every one of us this morning. When I come back, when I return, will I find faith? Will he find faith in us? Father, we have come here this morning expecting you to be at work. Father, we know that this world is full of darkness and pain, that it is surrounded by injustice. But we are so incredibly grateful for your overwhelming mercy that you would desire for the wicked to turn to turn away from their destruction and turn towards you. But God, it doesn't change the fact that in the midst of that waiting, it is hard. May you remind us that you will come back. It is not a matter of if, but when the Son of Man returns. And may he find faith in us that we never stopped we never stop turning to you. Amen. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This isn't forever. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The Son will return and make all things right. And we can endure as we lean on Him. I don't know what the next seven days are going to bring for you and me. I certainly hope it brings you an awareness of that God is good. And all the time. <laughs> and an expectation that he's going to do great things this week and as we gather together again. So until we meet again, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may he give you strength and courage 
and peace. Have a great week.